Blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord and whose hope the Lord is. A direct statement found in Jeremiah 17, verse 7. And that sets before us the privilege again that we have this evening to place our trust, our reliance, our confidence in the God of heaven and to take this opportunity to direct the homage and worship toward Him that He so richly deserves. And tonight it is good that we're able to assemble like this. It's our trust always here at Pippin that for each of us gathered it will be a benefit to us as well as glorifying God that we'll be stronger and better able this week to serve the Lord as we ought and to be better servants of His in each and every day and aspect of our lives. It is with that kind of thought in mind that I selected as the title for the lesson this evening, Satan Falling as Lightning. And as we contemplate that statement that Brother Lucas read for us from Luke the 10th chapter, we will this evening turn our attention to an aspect of reality that has been a problematic one to quite a few folks throughout the centuries. And certainly in regard to Hollywood, movies that are made, and other things that capture so well it would seem the attention of individuals we shall find that some of the things directed and mentioned really will in fact be touched upon in the scriptures we'll consider tonight. And interestingly enough, much of what Hollywood presents is wrong. And it is not in accordance to, of course, what the scriptures teach in regard to what we're going to study in our lesson tonight. With that said, you might be wondering, well, what exactly are we going to be considering? And it is with that in mind, I would ask us to consider some of these opening statements. You'll notice about the middle part of that slide, Jesus on the occasion before us did say, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. And as the Lord made that statement, we can appreciate that Jesus ever, of course, presented factual, absolute correct truth. And what did, then did Jesus mean when he made that statement in Luke the 10th chapter? When he said, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven, what did Jesus mean? And does that have implications for us today? In what way could you and I appreciate some of the benefit from it? I would ask us to take a journey this evening as we look at some of what the Scriptures teach on the subject that the Lord, it would seem, directly addressed in that text. Near the bottom of that screen... I have already thus set before us the idea that we shall be looking at tonight. Demons. Demonology. Hollywood, as I mentioned before, has made a veritable fortune over the decades making various movies that presented demons and various other things from the so-called dark side. And as Hollywood has presented those matters in many, many instances, they have erred far, of course, from what the Scriptures portray. What does the Bible teach about demons, demonology, the concourse or relation they possess to the devil himself? Let's see tonight if we can uncover some of the facts of the scriptures on those subjects and talk a bit about demons. We understand that in fact that was the subject behind the Lord's statement in Luke 10, 18 because in the preceding verse, notice therein what was stated. I'd like to read that in the entirety of its context. Luke 10 verse 17 reads as follows. And the seventy returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. It was then that Jesus in verse 18 said, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. When the seventy, those who had been sent by the Lord with a particular mission to carry forth the message of truth to the specified few of that time, 
when those 70 returned and with joy, it seems, made note of the fact that even the devils are subject unto us, Lord, through your name. It was exactly on the heels of that statement that Jesus said, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Thus, when they made the statement relative to demons and the fact that those demons were subject to through the power of Christ, the name of Christ, subject to the proclamations that those 70 had made. It was then that Jesus made reference to Satan falling as lightning. Tonight, let's uncover that more thoroughly. In what way did Satan fall as lightning, and how does that have wonderful truth for us today? The first part of our lesson this evening perhaps would take us to questioning and also to embedding in our mind the very first matter of great significance, being possessed with a demon. Demon possession, did that actually happen? I raise that point because those, of course, who are firm believers in the Word of God likely would have no question about the fact it did, for the Bible so often asserted that same fact. But there are others, and you and I may well know of many of them, though the subject may never have come up in conversation, who would question and doubt it. We'll uncover that, speak about that more thoroughly as we proceed. The Bible makes frequent, frequent reference to the devil in the singular case, but also in the text like the one we just read, the word devil in the King James translation is plural. Devils. The first thing we need to appreciate is the following distinction that's very clear in most other translations, like the American Standard and the Revised Standard. The King James doesn't do quite as much justice to that as we might prefer. I've listed that fact for you on the second line. The Greek words that are translated in those places are different. For instance, that place that would have devils, plural, is not the same Greek word as is translated in those places that refer to the gentleman or the being we know of as Satan. There is only one devil, Satan, the great deceiver of Revelation 12 verse 9. And the Greek word that is used to refer to him is diabolos. Note the second line. It's always singular. It is the devil. Thankfully, there's just one of him. But you'll notice with me that words like the one we just read about from Luke 10, verses 17 and 18, where devils is plural in the, in the King James translation, that word is diamonion. That just means demons. There's one devil. There are many demons. And hence, in that text before us, those 70 upon returning said, Lord, we see the demon subject unto us through your word. And it was then again that Jesus said, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven, clearly stating a correspondence between those demons and the devil. The devil is their leader. He is the one through whom they were able to do that which they were able to do. In essence, he was the leader of that group. But again, there is but one diabolos, one devil, many demons. With that thought in mind, consider what we should then appreciate next. As we look through the New Testament, we observe that again those references occur so very often. Consider with me, for instance, these ideas. Some 63 occurrences of the word diamion, that again, those demons in the New Testament, 57 direct references to the devil. So notice both are mentioned very often. 
We can't question the existence of these demons. They did exist. Many New Testament writers said so. But not only that, we might notice here is a very place where there are some, again, discredit or try to do that at least with regard to the Bible. They say, well, that couldn't have happened. Those folks maybe were epileptic or perhaps they had some other mental disorder like schizophrenia, something like that. They, in essence, explain away the existence of these demons and say, well, just because a person in the Bible who is said to have been possessed with such, in that day and time, they didn't have the medical knowledge we have today. They didn't know it was schizophrenia, and they called it a demon. Or they didn't know that it was some other kind of mental illness, and they merely called it being possessed with a demon. As we shall see in a number of passages, the Bible is exceedingly clear these demons are not mere sicknesses. The demons could cause sickness, but the Bible distinguishes it in every instance. With those kinds of ideas being made, demon possession was real. In that day and time, it did exist. Individuals did, in fact, find themselves possessed by one or more demons on a number of occurrences as revealed to us in the Holy Scriptures. For example... Look at just a few of the instances in which Jesus, the Savior, cast demons out of a being, out of a person, either a man or a woman. I've listed for you in Matthew 9, verses 32 and following, that scene in which a person besought Jesus to cast out that demon. The Lord, of course, did not try to correct the person by saying, well, you're mistaken, there's no such thing as demon possession. The Lord never made any such statement. In fact, He proceeded to send that de demon packing to cast that demon out. And that one that formerly was dumb, that is mute, unable to speak, then was able to speak. On that instance, that demon caused the muteness. Notice another example in Mark, I'm sorry, Matthew 17, verse 18. In the passages surrounding that text, we see again demon possession described in rather vivid language. And in that description, we again find directly the statement that those demons cast out. In Mark 1, verse 34, we notice another individual therein who was possessed with a demon. On that occasion, again, the Lord had no difficulty casting the demon out. And in that other reference in Mark 7, beginning in verse 26, we notice there a Syrophoenician woman came to the Lord and besought him to cast a demon out of her daughter. Again, the Lord made no attempt to correct and say, you daughter is not demon possessed. Rather, he affirmed the reality of what she said and proceeded to cast out the demon. With all of that considered with us, we notice how real demon possession was. And that leads us to note the very last statement on that slide. It was the case, without doubt, that one or more individuals in that first century era could be possessed with one or more demons. As all of that is before us, that does, I suspect, lead to the question, what else do we know about these demons? Is any more besides the passages that we've looked at revealed? Much more is stated, and let me try to list a few of the things this way. Here are some characteristics putting together a few passages that seem to be the case concerning these demons. First of all, the demon was a spirit. In fact, there's an interesting passage in Matthew 8, verse 16, that makes that abundantly clear. 
because in that text, it in fact reads as follows. I'll try to emphasize two of the words to be found in the verse, and I think the point will be abundantly clear for us. In Matthew 6, verse 18, I'm sorry, Matthew 8, verse 16, when the even was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils, and again, that's the word demons in, in the American Standard Translation, and he cast out the spirits with his word. So the first part of the verse, that which possessed these was called demons, and that which the Lord cast out was called spirits. Hence, these demons were spirit beings. That, of course, means from Luke 24, verse 39, since there we're told a spirit does not have flesh and bones, they were not physical in the same way that you and I are. They indeed were spirits. Furthermore, we can appreciate these spirits were aware. They were cognizant. That is to say, they had a body of knowledge. For instance, look with me in Mark 1, verse 24. On that occasion, as we appreciate a statement made by a demon, it is remarkable to consider the statement that was made. Mark 1, verse 24. This came upon that instance of when there was a gentleman who was possessed with a demon. And verse 24 reads as follows. Let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. I have often been amazed at the statement made by that demon. There are human beings, of course, that won't make a statement like that. And here is a demon who said, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Have you come to torment us before the time? This demon seen knew exactly who the Lord was, and he knew what he was capable of doing. And the Lord, in fact, that demon confessed as much. So we should appreciate these demons had a body of knowledge. They were cognizant beings. And furthermore, as we notice in Acts 19, verse 15, this, in the days of the Apostle Paul, a similar statement to this was made again. In fact, on that rather unusual occasion, we find again in Acts 19... The following statement is made. I would direct your attention again to how amazing it seems that the statement took place. The evil spirit answered and said, Jesus, I know, and Paul, I know, but who are you? Now that was an occasion in which this individual was attempting to cast out a demon, and here the demon in speaking said, I know Jesus, and I know Paul, I don't know you. Who are you? Have you ever thought about the fact then that apparently in that body of knowledge the demons have, they know the saints of God? I wonder how well they know you and me. Do they know how strongly you and I claim to stand for the truth? Are they aware then of the marvelous wonder of those who are the saints of God? Again, notice what the demons knew. But as you consider the next line, notice they furthermore can assimilate facts and they are even said to believe. In James 2 verse 19, we have therein the statement made. Again, the King James reads it as devils, but it again, the word is demons. The demons believe and tremble. They believe. In light of these confessions we have just noted, do they know about Jesus as a son of God? Remember, that demon said, you're the Holy One of God. That demon knew very well who the Savior was. 
And he knew again his prestige, his preeminence, his glory, his majesty in heaven. He knew him. Notice in this text before us, James 2.19, these demons believe and tremble. Why do they tremble? What reason do they have that has stricken fear into them? As we learn in 2 Peter chapter 2, a text which I did not directly list for your consideration. But notice, on a number of occasions, the demons were well aware of what their eternal destiny was. Hast thou come to torment us before the time? They knew torment was in their future. They knew exactly what their end result would be, where their finality would occur. They merely did not want it to occur prior to when it had to be, apparently. Might we take note of the fact they tremble? They tremble. Do you know some humans who refuse to tremble at the power and majesty of the gospel? Who refuse to humble their knee and confess the character of the, of the Savior? And yet even the demons are well aware of their tormented future that is their destiny. I would ask each of us to notice furthermore, these demons carried on more than one conversation with Jesus while he was here. He, being aware of them, they, recognizing Him, carried on a conversation with Him. I've listed some passages for you. In Mark, the fifth chapter, I merely stated as Mark 5, for you'll need to begin reading in verse 1 and read much of that chapter. That was that occasion in which that demoniac, that one overcome with demons, and he had superhuman strength. Now, he was a very unusual person, to be sure, but we learned he was possessed with a demon. Notice how often Jesus spoke with him throughout the course of that chapter. In fact, isn't it true that he even gave the Lord his name? We'll return to that thought in just a moment. As you contemplate so far what we've learned about demons, we can't help but be a bit impressed. Knowledgeable, able to assimilate facts, able to in fact respond to what was occurring about them which leads us to note they were capable of action. They could act. Consider with me, if you would, in Mark 12, or rather Matthew 12, verses 44 and 45. On that occasion when that statement was made, you'll notice that therein the Lord was teaching with regard to the casting out of demons, seven of them on that, on that, or casting out that demon out of that being, out of that man. And as He did that, you'll notice that the demon on two occasions made a statement indicative of the fact he was able to act. One of them, then goeth he. He made his decision. This was that time when, remember, he took seven worse than himself and went back in to that same place the Lord had just cast the demon out of. So notice, he made the volitional decision to return to the same place that he'd been cast out of earlier. He made the decision to act. And in that action, we notice the power behind these kinds of beings, the kind behind these demons of which we're studying. In Matthew 8, verse 29, the demons were able to exhibit fear. That is to say, they could become fearful. The actual word that's used there indicates being horrified. And I would ask you to again notice the context is in light of the torment they were one day going to experience. Notice, they were horrified in thinking about the torment that they were going to experience. Doesn't that indicate the capability of their experiencing the degree of what we'd call feeling? They were going to know they were in torment. 
It's not that they were going to be there and despite the fact they had no body, they couldn't feel. They trembled at the thought of and were horrified at the thought of the torment that was coming. That helps us see today that just because you and I will be in some kind of spirit form when the day of judgment comes with a body that will not be flesh and bones like this one, it will not mean we won't be able to feel pain if hell is our destiny. And it certainly won't mean that we won't feel the excruciating agony of eternity in there, for we shall be able to experience it just as surely as if we had a body like this one. It's a part of what will be the case of those incorruptible bodies spoken of in 1 Corinthians 15. Perhaps it might be furthermore noted near the close of that slide. Some other adjectives often used to describe these demons, they on many occasions were called unclean spirits. In fact, that's one of the most familiar King James references to them. What would it mean to describe them as unclean spirits? It means the following. They were impure. They were morally indignant. Perhaps to say that differently, they in fact brought about that which was bad. That which was not for the goodness or welfare of the humans in which they were dwelling at the time. Moral impureness. Morally indignant. All of that brings us to see that though powerful they were, and though very interesting beings, there is yet more to be said. Consider with me furthermore what effects they brought. When a person was possessed with one of these demons, what happened? What kind of characteristics followed? Here, the best we can do, of course, is to merely use the Word of God and list some specific examples. For maybe between them we can conclude some interesting concepts. It certainly seems to be the case that being possessed with a demon brought about a variety of potential physical effects. The same thing didn't happen in every case. For one person, perhaps some particular set of characteristics followed, and for another, it was a different set. And hence, I've listed for us a few considerations. Maybe the first thing to note, it was possible to be possessed by more than one demon at a time. That may seem intriguing, but nonetheless, there are at least two records of when it occurred. First of all, Mary Magdalene. Remember, the Lord cast seven demons out of her. Might we take note then of perhaps one other fact? It is that interesting scene in Mark the fifth chapter. You might remember that was again that rather encompassing scene when this person lived in a very antisocial way. He lived among the tombs. He wore no clothes. They had tried to bind him with chains and fetters, and he broke them. He, in fact, had superhuman strength, but notice again, he wandered about in the, in the caves. He wasn't able to be tamed or bound. He was possessed with a demon. But notice among the descriptions, when the Lord began to carry on the conversation with him, the Lord asked him his name, and he said, My name is Legion, for we are many. That poor man was apparently possessed with many demons at once. Might we take note then of the fact that it was possible to be possessed with more than one at once? And furthermore, we'll notice that there were some instances when being possessed with the demons seemed to display itself with what we would call epileptic character. Now notice I didn't say it was the same as being guilty or being encompassed with epilepsy, but consider the way in which some of the descriptions are made. For instance, in that scene, 
Matthew 17, beginning in verse 14, as well as Mark 9, beginning in verse 14, as well as Luke 9, beginning in verse 37. Those are all three synoptic accounts of the same event. But there was a gentleman who foamed at the mouth, who in fact often threw or was thrown into the water or into the fire. And remember, his parents were beside themselves because they said he gnashes at his teeth, he foams at the mouth, at times he falls into the fire or falls onto the ground. And notice his body even apparently fell into a rigid state at times. Well, you and I, if we were to see something like that happen, we might catalog it as some kind of epilepsy. But the scriptures are very clear he was possessed with a demon. So we notice that in that instance, that demon possession manifested itself in something like this behavior that would at least be akin to something like epilepsy. In Matthew 8, 28, Mark 5, verses 1 and following, and Luke 8, verses 26 and following, we have that same scene to which I referred earlier, that man that walked amongst the tombs naked, this rather strange and somewhat unbecoming behavior. That's what that kind of behavior brought. Again, superhuman strength. As you think about all of that with me, that particular scene was somewhat unusual compared to many of the others. Notice in Matthew 12, verse 22, on another instance, possession with a demon led to this one being both blind and mute. He was unable to speak. He was unable to see. There were other instances where it led only to blindness. Other instances, it led to other kinds of maladies. This is just a sampling of the few, but again, the variety is easy to appreciate. At the bottom, let us reiterate the statement that I've made earlier, but that is nonetheless rather important. Again, you will occasionally read commentators' notes that will basically state that any of these occurrences that claim to be demon possession were some kind of mental illness or some kind of physical malady, and they just blamed it on demon possession because they didn't know any better. There are a number of things we might respond to. That first, that would be a direct accusation against the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit said it was demon possession, who are we to say it wasn't? And if the Holy Spirit on so many occurrences claimed it was and even said that those spirits were cast out in many instances, then it would almost be claiming the Holy Spirit lied to say that then it wasn't what He said it was. But perhaps in light of all of that, I would direct you to one passage that seems very abundant. In Mark 1 verse 32, we have the following statement made, and I would ask you to notice how that these two things are distinguished. In Mark chapter 1, verse 32, it says, And at even, when the sun did set, they brought unto him all that were diseased and them that were possessed with devils. Note with me, the two things are said to be separate. There were those that were diseased. They were brought to the Lord for his healing power to, in fact, cure them. But there were others who were possessed with demons. They also were brought, and notice the distinction that is therein placed between them. The Bible always distinguishes those physical diseases to possession with demon. They aren't the same thing. Now, it's true that being possessed with a demon could make one display sicknesses like blindness or muteness, but notice it could manifest itself in other ways like great strength 
and antisocial behavior and the other things that we have seen this evening. To say all of those things perhaps brings us then to ask, what about the relation of Jesus to demon possession? Because notice in that text we said earlier, the demons were very well aware of who Jesus was and what He could do to them. He could cast them out merely at His Word, exemplifying and demonstrating marvelous power over them. It would thus do us well to study a bit about what relation did Jesus bear to the existence of these demons. In every place we encounter them, we find that Jesus exhibited complete control over them. They were at His very command. When He told them to exit a being, they had no choice but to obey. Remember on one occasion, it was they who in fact asked about cast, being cast into swine and the Lord permitted it or allowed it. But when He gave commandment, they had no choice but to go. They couldn't choose to stay in the man. They had to obey that which He commanded. As you think about His control over them, I might ask us to build up to it by looking, first of all, at the issue, do we find demon possession in the Old Testament? As you peruse in your mind the 39 Old Testament books, can you remember any instances of where we direct have statements referring to demon possession? As nearly as I was able to tell, to tell in my research, I could find few, if any, references directly to demon possession in the Old Testament. That leads us to ask something very interesting. If it were not possible then, why did it suddenly become possible when the Lord was here? What changed? Why was it the bidding of God that that suddenly became that which was His will? Perhaps in light of the verses that we're about to consider, we might well pause to notice that there being few, if any, occurrences prior to these instances in the Gospel accounts, and yet there being so many occurrences in the gospel accounts, it would certainly seem that whatever the plan and purpose of their being here was, it related to the Lord's mission. It related to what He was to exemplify by the greatness of the gospel era, and it also should relate, of course, to His being here. All of that perhaps leads us to ask these questions. It is not as though I realize it may look strange the way I presented it, I am building up to a point that I hope will make sense. Let's digress just a moment and think about what Jesus demonstrated when He was here. The Son of God. Isn't it true, as you'll note there about the middle of that screen, that the Lord exemplified and manifested with absolute clarity, absolute power over all things physical. Anything of the physical realm was subject to Him. For instance, he immediately stilled a storm on the Sea of Galilee. It happened immediately, we're told in Mark chapter 4. Here are the disciples, fearful for their lives. Oh, out there on that boat, the Lord instantly stilled that storm. Here was a raging storm, and the Lord had complete control over it. On another occasion in Matthew the 14th chapter, think about the force due to gravity. The Lord walked on water. As he did that, he exemplified complete mastery of anything that would be supposedly a law of nature, anything that would be physical, having to do with chemistry or physics or things like that that we would state. What's more, 
you might notice furthermore that Jesus had complete control over matters like food supply. Able to feed 5,000 men, not counting the children and women with but five loaves and two fish. John chapter 6. Here he exemplified again a mastery over this thing that was a physical issue. Perhaps in the final way, I ask you to notice even sickness. The Lord could heal instantly of whatever physical maladies. That woman that had the issue of blood touched the hem of the Lord's garment, healed instantly. Those blind men, one of whose name was Bartimaeus, healed instantly. Mark chapter 10. You see, there were no limits to what he could accomplish in the physical realm. Let's turn our attention to thinking about the spiritual realm. Did the Lord have as much mastery, as much control over spiritually related things? I believe we would each say that death is a spiritually related thing because it's the separation of the spirit and the body. And yet any time the Lord wished to do it, He could bring the person back to life. He raised Lazarus, did He not, in John 11? He raised the son of the widow of Nain in Luke 7? He raised Jairus' daughter in Matthew 8? All of those instances, the Lord had no problem. There's not the slightest hint that he attempted it but failed and tried again and succeeded. He had complete mastery in that era over these things spiritually related as well. Perhaps that leads us then to turn our attention to this. Where do demons fall into this? And where does the devil fall into this? Would they be in the spiritual category or in the physical category? Clearly they're in the former, aren't they? We've already learned the demons were spirits, and the devil is stated to be a spirit being as well. And hence, if the Lord was to manifest to all the fact that He was the absolute Son of God, God in the flesh with all the prestige, might, and power of the heavenly realm at His disposal, He would, in fact, need to exemplify and display His mastery over these spirit beings. It's no wonder the demons were so subject to Him. After all, He was God in the flesh. And what's more, in that mastery over them, he was laying one more elemental foundation and one more foundational concept so that all could understand he is the Son of God. He is worthy of worship. He is the Savior. After all, with all these physical things and spiritual things and nothing fell outside his capability, nothing fell outside the limits of his strength and might, and that also included these demons. That, I would suggest, brings us back to that text that we started the lesson with, and the one that was the lesson text. Again, the seventy returned and said, Even the demons are subject unto us through thy name. And notice again, the text says, With joy they made that report. Consider with me this. As those demons had been, uh, rather, those disciples had been sent out, and they, of course, were able to do a number of things to help send forth the message of truth, to perhaps teach, but also to heal and other things like that. Might we pause to notice the singular thing in Luke's account that was worthy of their attention? The demons are subject unto us. Here were these disciples who apparently were able to cast them out in a limited way, here were these disciples aware of the fact that when the Lord gave commandment and through His name and power, the demons were subject to them. It was in that way, Jesus said, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. That was the Lord's poetic way and His rather powerful way of asserting 
the fact that even those demons are subject to me. And furthermore, as emissaries of the devil himself, the greatness of his power is shortly to be entirely restricted. This business of demon possession is not going to be perpetual. And in the fact that Satan is falling from heaven, that kind of language is used in passages such as Isaiah chapter 10 and Isaiah 13 again, in which there those statements describe the great fall of an empire like Assyria or like Babylon then. Jesus used it with respect to Satan. This kingdom that has been erected now since really the dawn of time, when I die on the cross, I will crush completely his power. Notice as we go back as far as Genesis 3.15, in that early stage in time, what again did God tell the serpent? What did he tell the devil on that occasion? You'll be able to bruise his heel, but he's going to bruise your head. He's going to crush your power completely. And isn't that what the Lord did? He took what had been the strong man and said a stronger than the strong man is now here. That's a direct statement of, of, of Mark chapter 3, verses 27 and following. Luke, in fact, records the same in Luke 12. Jesus, when he made references on that occasion, when the Pharisees said, by the power of Beelzebub he cast out demons, it was in that very context Jesus said, that's not right. If a kingdom is divided against itself, can that kingdom stand? The Lord asked a far better question than they did. And it was in that very context Jesus said, a stronger than the strong man is here. You see, the Lord was stronger than the devil, and He still is. He is mighty, and these demons, though they were able to inflict so much, the Lord cast them out effortlessly when the opportunity presented itself, and when, of course, the occasion was right. As He cast out these demons, that takes us back to the greatness of what is stated about the Lord. In texts such as Hebrews 2.14, it says that Jesus destroyed him that had the power of death. That is the devil. Who is thus the stronger? The Lord is. And he said, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. His reign was about to end. In 1 John 3 verse 8, For this purpose the Lord was manifested, that he might bring to naught the power of the devil. Why did the Lord come? He came to bring to naught the power of the devil. In all of these passages, we see that sure enough, Jesus did preview greatly the fact that as lightning, Satan was falling. His reign and regime, as far as the ultimate character, were about to end. It's true today, of course, there are many who choose to serve Satan, but they don't have to if they don't want to. Satan cannot overwhelm you and me unless we allow him to do so. As those who have tied on to the blood of Christ and who have used the greatness of His sacrifice for us, we can rest assured then that Satan cannot overwhelm us despite our efforts. Because you see, we have the greatness of the power of God and of Christ on our side. He that is in us is greater than he that is in the world. 1 John 4 verse 4. Perhaps all of that does lead to one final question of the night. I thought we'd use that to close the lesson. For just as surely as we've discussed demons so far, likely the last question resting on our minds might be, does demon possession occur today? Do we find examples like today like what we read about in the New Testament accounts? Can a person be possessed with a demon today? 
Let's see what the scriptures have to say about that. We might begin with one Old Testament prophecy. In Zechariah 13, verse 2, not far from the end of the Old Testament, we do read about a rather amazing prophecy. It is so intriguing that I wish to merely read it. It is but that one verse. But in Zechariah 13, listen to what the ancient prophet Zechariah asserted. He says, And it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols out of the land, and they shall no more be remembered. And also I will cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to pass out of the land. It might well be that one would find it difficult to make an ironclad case based solely on that verse. But notice it does say that the day was coming when apparently both the prophet and the unclean spirit would pass out of the land. We might well then wonder, in that day of the Old Testament era, when we had already learned that we saw few, if any, examples of demon possession, the prophets thus stated that such a thing was going to be, but they also stated it was going to cease at some point. We might well then ask about these other occurrences in the New Testament. On those instances when a demon was cast out, was that not a miracle? Because after all, it was a suspension of what was the recognized order with respect to those demons. Remember, they had to submit to whatever the Lord said. And notice, only men could cast them out when Christ gave them that authority, when He specifically gave them the power to do it. Anyone to whom He did not give that power, there is no record that they were able to cast out demons. We might well then bring those questions to ask about our situation today. If it required the direct statement of the Savior or a miracle to cast them out, we might then ask, are there miracles today? Are individuals such as you and me able to perform miracles like the apostles and those of the first century era? That answer we know very surely. The age of miracles has long since passed, hasn't it? We have an abundance of passages that teach us that. First of all, we might notice in Hebrews 2, beginning in verse 1, specifically the first four verses of that chapter, all point out that miracles had a purpose. Once then that purpose was satisfied and fulfilled and completed, then there was no more the need for those miracles. A similar argument is presented in 1 Corinthians 13, where there we find that marvelous statement, knowledge is going to pass away, prophecy is going to pass away, Paul asserted. He only listed two out of that entire list of those spiritual gifts of the previous chapter, but among them, the ability to cast out demons. If those passages mean anything to us, they must tell us then that capability has passed away. If then it's not possible for you and me to cast them out, then if demon possession occurred, Satan would be more powerful than Christ. For we would have no way to cast him out now because Christ hasn't given to you and to me the capability to cast them out. Logically, thus, it must follow there must not be any demon possession today. Again, that certainly is not to say that individuals may not act very unusually based on mental problems or mental illnesses, but it's not demon possession as the cause like it was in the first century. Other things have brought that situation about. Perhaps finally, in the closing five verses to the book of Mark, in Mark 16, verses 17 and following, 
we find one other passage that describes the ability to cast out demons. And you notice again, it was stated to be like this. There were certain things that were to be granted by the apostolic authority, by the laying on of hands to those in that first century. That was that same text, again, where it would talk about picking up serpents. Later, Paul did that, didn't he, in Acts 28? That serpent clung onto his hand, but Paul didn't die. In that same passage, is casting out demons. We can thus rest assured that even though Satan seems to be having a heyday in our world, it is not by virtue of demon possession like it was then. His power in that way has been restricted. No more does God allow him to possess a person with demons like he allowed him to do then. And the reason that it was allowed then apparently was to illustrate and demonstrate so very clearly the majestic power of Christ as the Son of God with His power over the natural realm and over the spiritual. No one could argue, well, He mustn't be the Son of God for He can't do this. Nothing was withheld from Him. Tonight, what about your life and mine? Are you withholding your life from Him? You see, we have control over that. Satan can't possess you with a demon. But you can refuse to submit to the Savior. You can live your life and reject Jesus every day of it, and you will die and be eternally lost. God will let you make that decision. He won't force you to obey Him. But notice, Satan can't overwhelm you with a demon despite your efforts to the good. That power is not His any longer. For you see, Jesus said,